0: This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. I hope I'm going to say this correctly. Matt Lemire. Thank you for joining me in the trenches.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Did I get your surname correct?
1: You you did, um, but you put the syllable in a place that I don't normally don't put it. It's Lomire. You got it. Yeah, that's right.
0: Lomire. No, I want to. I want to. No, must say it correctly. If it's your name, I must get yeah, it correct. Yeah. So it's 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 yeah, Matt that, You were a pilot at Top Gun. That's correct. Almost. <laughs> what was almost. it like? Let me let me let me specify <laughs> okay. what I
1: mean by almost. Okay. <laughs> Because, like you, you know the the details matter, um, and I I want people to have an accurate picture. But Top Gun is a U.S. Navy fighter pilot specialty school. I was Air Force, and so all of the Air Force parallels that exist in the Air Force fighter pilot world, you know, Red Flag is a uh is like the navy top gun school but all of the fighter pilots who are the best of the best in the navy go through top gun school now i've interviewed on my show some top gun pilots i've got friends that are top gun pilots you can't technically claim you're a top gun anything if your career was spent in the air force i was an air force uh, fighter pilot so technically i'm not top gun i'm as good as any top gun pilot i flew f-15 c's that's an it's a single seat air to air oh no ways yeah. And, uh, but after that I went to Space Force and before there was a Space Force, which officially became law in uh, December of 2019, I had been in, uh, after the fighter community, I had been in what's called the Air Force space community because the department of the Air Force here in the U S owned all of our national security space capabilities and then under the Trump administration and with a bipartisan vote from Congress, the Space Force became a reality in December of 2019. And I found myself as an officer and then a commander in the U.S. Space Force. And um, mm. but yeah, so technically that's that's my nuanced answer to whether or not I am a top gun. I'm not really a top gun pilot, but uh, I was a fighter pilot for the Air Force.
0: Wow, that was a very expansive response to um, a, a joke question. <laughs> I know,
1: dude. I, see, I don't know if it's OCD or I don't. I don't think I'm. I'm on the autism scale, but I do care about the details. And um,
0: I was going to follow that up with the with the, with another joke, asking what it's like to fly with Maverick. But <laughs>
1: I can tell you all about that. Yeah, no, no, no flight experience with Maverick.
0: But, have you seen uh, Top you know, Gun
1: 2? I have.
0: What did you think? I loved, yeah. I loved it. I loved it.
1: I did too. I've seen it a couple of times. Uh, in fact, someone who's a colleague of mine, who's got a team of uh, people in Washington DC, I'll be out there speaking. Uh, at. In fact, the, um, I'm looking at my wall calendar. The Army and the Navy football teams play each other this December, Uh, I think it's in Pittsburgh, but I've been invited to come out and speak to all of the Army-Navy fans right before the game at a private breakfast. And one of my colleagues who's out in Virginia has insisted, even if we can't cross paths for any other reason, we got to make sure that our office goes with you to watch Top Gun so that we can ask you 101 questions about whether it's accurate, and if you like it, and if not, why not? But yeah, I, I think Top Gun 2 is an excellent movie. Top Gun One's a little bit cheesy for me. They're both cheesy.
0: They are, but they're, they're fun.
1: Yeah, 2 is better. Second is better.
0: There's an interesting segue here, because there is definitely a sense of wokeness, though, that came through in the second movie. Did you notice it?
1: I notice any whiff of wokeness, wherever it appears, unfortunately, these days, but there, it was blended well with a good injection of patriotism and hoorah-rah, you know, America's good, patriotic, or is a good country that's worth loving and defending, and so I, I appreciated that element of it, of it as well. What specific aspect are you referring to? Uh,
0: uh, well, the fact that the, the enemy is not actually specified. You know, I don't. I don't know if that's
1: necessarily wokeism. It could be. We live in a, a terribly politically correct uh, culture and world these days, which is, of course, and uh, it's a predecessor to what we currently call wokeism. Uh, there are real national security concerns that I'm sure Hollywood is keen on about showing real world maps describing countries like iran or china or russia who happen to be in our national security strategy documents in this country as our top adversaries in the world to make a patriotic movie about blowing up targets um and then saying (laughs) oh by the way this is iran you know what's the messaging that the united states is trying to convey and i think they're just uber sensitive to that kind of thing you know even you know, even probably a conservative movie maker is is more sensitive today than they would have been 10 years ago,
0: 20 years ago to those kinds of things. Mm. Okay, Matt, let's talk about your bio. Okay. So take me through it. Okay. Well,
1: I was born on the morning of, you don't want to start <laughs> there, do you? It was 1981. I'm 40. <laughs> 40 this year
0: (laughs) it was a cold and stormy night
1: (laughs) i don't know it probably wasn't i was born in tucson arizona um but it was december i was born in december i'll turn 41 this year yeah i you know i guess my bio briefly put i i i never had an ambition of being in the defense department of being in military um didn't have a military family but um I was recruited to play basketball in college, for college, I should say, and the Air Force Academy uh, is where I decided to go and didn't end up playing college basketball for very long. You know, it lasted a year and I quit. Uh, It was uh, not really enjoyable. Um, But I ended up flying jets for the Air Force. Uh, I did that until 2013. That's when I came into the Air Force space community, and the mission I was doing in, in the space community was space-based missile warning. That's where I gained some expertise in, in, in our space capabilities. And there are essentially two different types of missile warning that we do. There's ground-based, radar-based missile warning. We've got something that was established during the Cold War called, called the distant early warning line, the dew line. All up along the northernmost latitudes of the United States and into Europe and over into Alaska, we've got these ground-based radar sites looking for intercontinental ballistic missiles coming over the North Pole. But in addition to that, as the, you know, the next decade uh, came and went, we started to populate the space domain with, an in, with infrared sensors in a, a missile warning architecture in geosynchronous orbit and so those ir platforms are constantly on the lookout 24 7 for heat signatures anywhere on the globe from uh and frankly most people would be surprised how much by way of heat signatures the united states detects on a day-in-a-day-out basis for in the middle east for example and how many rockets and missiles are launched how many explosions are happening in the world and so you get to see those kinds of things with infrared sensors but that's My career from that point forward in 2013 to 2019 was spent in the space-based missile warning sector of our national security space enterprise. I was a aide-de-camp for a four-star general uh, who's now in charge of the the Space Force, Jay Raymond. And uh, I left being aide-de-camp to go off and get uh, a couple of master's degrees at uh, Air Force or Department of Defense funded uh, university opportunities. And, uh, so I, one of my master's degrees, which I pride myself in actually is in military strategy. Uh, the best education, formal education I've ever received. Although I'm kind of a self-taught person. I see you like books and, mm. and so do I. And, um, you know, there's no better teacher than the diligent student getting into, we've got an abundance of information available to us in our lives these days. Uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, got that master in uh, military strategy, came out and was in command of one of two units that are in charge of our nation's uh, space-based missile warning architecture, and did that for one year until I was fired for uh, writing what became a best-selling book, Irresistible Revolution. The subtitle of the book tells a lot more about what the book is really about. It's Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military, Because some of the critical social justice activism that the world had watched unfold in this country and in other countries in in the the West specifically uh, for the last couple of years, unfortunately, permeated our military at the ground level, and uh, there's been a platform for what I could, you know, what you can rightly term left wing political activism in our military, and to to put a, a bow on this idea. Uh, of, I guess, uh, on my bio, um, at least as far as my military bio is concerned, uh, I was fired in May of 2021 for writing that book because I really believe it's important for militaries, especially the United States military, to, to be relatively apolitical. Uh, it's traditionally been a bastion of patriotism and conservatism, but it's important that regardless of who's in office, uh, regardless of the citizens partisan policy disputes our uniform wears i mean we get them ugly for a reason we shave their hair off and put them in the same uniform when they go through basic training and it's like hey you're all the same we don't care about your race we don't care about your economic background per se we don't care necessarily about any that what we care about is lethality as a force about unity as a force about tackling the same mission together and your oath to the constitution that's it. Uh, we don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. We don't care if you believe in God or not. We care about you doing your job and doing it exceptionally well in defense of the American people. And what I saw was a radical left-wing politicization of our armed forces. So I wrote a book about it, traced, it, traced its roots to Marxist ideology. I think I did a pretty good job because I know what I'm talking about for the most part with that stuff. And um, I published it, spoke about it, and was fired the next week and uh, ended up separating from the military in September of 2021. And since then, I spent the past year involved, unfortunately, and somewhat necessarily in the political arena. I I founded a PAC. I work with a nonprofit called STARS. uh, And um, I've been speaking around the country as well and uh, trying to inform people what's going on in our military, showed up on shows,
0: podcasts, etc. How did you get an interest in military? Uh, You
1: know, I didn't get an interest in the military until I was in the military. But again, (laughs) it was being recruited. You know, honestly, I mean, I I didn't have ambitions to, to spend my life in the military until I was in the military, flying jets for the military. And I thought, you know, I want to learn more about my country supposed to defend this country that I've never studied. I, I like to read and study a lot. I've never looked at American history of all things. That's embarrassing. I was a U.S. Air Force Academy graduate who didn't know anything about American history. That's surprisingly, perhaps, uh, surprisingly an easy thing to do is be a college graduate and know absolutely nothing. And so I set set to trying to learn a little bit about why this country is uh, great. I really believe it. it was founded on great ideas and ideals and principles. And uh, the more I learned about it, frankly, the more I wanted to serve the country. I thought, you know, we need good soldiers, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We need good people who, who love their country and are willing to defend it at all costs. And unfortunately, that mentality is fading. Because uh, even patriots and, and maybe yeah. in some cases, especially patriots, are like uh, this place ain't worth defending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, in some in some ways, they're right about that too, given where things are headed. But you know, the ideas and ideals of America are exceptional. I really believe that they're yeah. they're great and they're worth defending.
0: The last two and a half three years of all this nonsense that we've all been through um, has created very strange. Paradigm shifts, uh, and and one of them has been a, rem- a remarkably anti-Western sentiment. Um, right. I'm sure you I'm sure you've noticed, and I live in a BRICS in a BRICS nation, so I can see that. Um, and in many ways, it's it's justified, right? But in many ways, it also isn't. And speaking to somebody like you actually is quite refreshing.
1: You know, I'm a pretty refreshing talk to. (laughs) Cheers. (laughs) I'm (laughs) humble. No. You know, there's, I think your point is valid. Uh, There's plenty of things I'm critical about, by the way, of Western civilization, and I'm about as true of a patriot and an America loving guy as you can get. I mean, I love our country. I don't like what's becoming of our country. I think it's deserving of our skepticism and criticism at the moment. But what I don't appreciate is that there are plenty of ignorant fools parading about as if they have some justifiable criticism of what America was or was intended to be, and they know nothing about the country. Mm. And in fact, they usually borrow extremely what you might call low-resolution narratives of American history, only focusing on the minutiae that is actually, some of it's minor stuff, some of it's big stuff, admittedly, but they pick out minutia and they overemphasize the minutiae. and those really grand things that they understate, criticize, uh, don't focus on at all. And there's a kind of revisionist history that um, is, is titillating to people. Uh, and and somehow the revolutionary impulse gets people to believe that uh, they're now involved in some noble cause in tearing down Western civilization as if they've got a good plan for what's going to replace it. And what they don't appreciate is that if you want to tear down the best what was intended to be the best experiment in human governance in world history, um, you know, it would take exceptionally virtuous mo- uh, people the most excellent of minds the most patriotic of nationalists so to speak to form something that would be worth preserving and worthwhile and maybe even um i i i'm gonna get ahead of myself because i don't think there's something we can truly replace this with but what's going to happen if you tear this down is that you return to something that's much more akin to tribalism uh it's it's a dog eat dog world everyone's out for their own self-interest everyone uh spends their time in whatever community they think is best going to uh, provide support for their own survival and their needs and so forth, whether that's religiously based, politically based, uh, or force. You know, who can provide the most force? I mean, that's kind of how a lot of the Middle Eastern countries work these days. Uh, People and tribes gather with other tribes to provide for their welfare and security. And, uh, you know, we descend into that kind of, we descend towards that kind of a world when you want to tear down the institutions because they're, you know, maybe supposedly or allegedly still systemically racist, for example, you start mm-hmm. to impose regulation, you tear them down, you shut shop doors and the government takes more control. And pretty soon people are rebelling. People soon, pr- Pretty soon people are so disenfranchised that they're willing to look out only for their own best interests. And, and that trajectory... Uh, destroys nations. And uh, that's, that's why I was compelled to write a book, despite the fact that I knew it would likely get me in trouble with my military super- superiors. What is Space Force? Uh, Space Force is a new branch of the US military. So when people think Space Force, they should think that it is like Air Force, Navy, Army, Marine Corps, Space Force. Now, Marine Corps, for example, is embedded within the u.s navy the department of the navy also owns effectively the u.s marine corps the same is true for the space force and the air force relationship there's a department of the air force it's a civilian run uh or led department within the department of defense and then under the umbrella of the department of the air force you've got the Air Force and the Space Force, which have four-star generals that lead those. They sit on the Joint Chiefs. So (laughs) Space Force, as a new branch of the military, has only been around since December of 2019. But as I mentioned, all throughout the Cold War, the Air Force was responsible for uh, operating our, our national security space capabilities. Anything from the GPS that shows up on people's phones, the blue dot that they've got on their Google map or their Apple map, the, the GPS that farmers are using free of charge or aircraft in the civilian sector are using, to strategic communications for some of our political leaders um, and others, to um, uh, intelligence gathering, uh, to missile warning, as I've mentioned. All of those basic things we've been doing for many decades from space, uh, in space, through space. And uh, there are other things that the human imagination might lay hold upon. Uh, that for decades now, also some big brain people uh, in the government have been trying you know, problems. They've been trying to solve ways to exploit space as a domain, um, you know, for our quote unquote defense. But our defense also can be used as an offense, which then turns it into an international relations problem. And so. A good example, one of the problems that we face in the space arena is trash or debris. If you've got a bunch of debris up in the space arena, the question becomes, well, how do you clean it up so it doesn't wreck the space architecture that we've got up there? Because you can't control where all of the pieces of debris are going to go in low Earth orbit. And what if the International Space Station ends up struck by a piece of debris? Well, let's go clean it up. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, let's put this thing up there that has a giant arm and it extends a net and it gathers up all this debris. The question then becomes, well, can you use it to hurt other satellites? And uh, the answer is always yes. Well, potentially, yeah. And it's like, well, that's potentially a weapon. We can't do that because it'll create an international you know, crisis. Uh, China will start threatening. Russia will start to, you know, that you start an arms race. And so one of the challenges that Space Force has is both... Providing protection for U.S. assets and our allies' assets in space and on the ground, but also going about that mission in a way that doesn't create, um, that doesn't escalate international tensions or create misunderstanding. Uh, And uh, so the U.S. will point to Russia and China and say, hey, look, they're acting in ways that are harmful in space or dangerous or potentially threatening. And then Russia and China point at the United States and say, hey, look, they're acting in ways that are threatening or potentially harmful in space, and so everyone else is the bad guy. And yet again, we've got a space race. Yet again, we've got an arms race. And uh, just about anything anyone can imagine taking place in or through or from space, there's a chance someone's already been thinking about it for a very long time, or even beginning to develop those ideas into capabilities. But yeah, that's Space Force is a branch of the military. It's not something that Trump, that Donald Trump could have done independent of Congress. It's not something his administration could have established independent of Congress. But he had the fortitude, so to speak, to make it a reality. But it had been Mm. a long standing idea that had been championed uh, by both Democrats and Republicans in the Congress for a couple of decades.
0: But Matt, you've been onto YouTube. The earth is flat and space is fake and gay
1: right yeah that's true and so they've really got their work cut out for them in the space force (laughs) because you know (laughs) first we got to get a space um you know what's what's funny about that i'm going to put you on the spot again just like i did in the beginning (laughs) are you flat earther? are you no 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 No, but i do enjoy
0: the conversations
1: well i got a lot to say about it i shouldn't i I didn't a few months ago because i wasn't worth thinking about to me, but what I'm surprised at is just how many people are are, and there's more and more people that mm. like the idea. And um, some of the people I've spoken to that are flat earthers, um, I suppose, no matter what platform I speak on, someone listening is going to be like, "Oh yeah, I've been thinking about that. I wonder if that's true." Mm. Uh, some of these people like to point to the Bible. As their justification for their their changing worldview, and it doesn't help the situation that. Um, w- and I understand very well the text they're pointing out in the Book of Genesis about the fir- yeah the firmament, the waters below and the waters above, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't help that we've understandably become completely skeptical of the narratives and information that are fed to us by our untrustworthy governments and so what is preposterous however is the fact that every nation on the earth who has any kind of a functional budget is becoming quite focused on developing space capabilities launching things into space becoming what we call a spacefaring nation that they've got hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of employees both in the private and government sectors working on space exploration and in military capabilities and it's all just a big hoax. There's no outer space. Uh, but we've tricked all of these people. Not only did we fake moon landings, but we've, we've tricked them into thinking there's actually an outer space up there. We've tricked them into thinking the Earth is flat. And all these rocket launches we're doing and all the intercontinental ballistic missiles we've tested, I mean, that's just all for show. It's all fake. And we've tricked everyone. And you have to ask at some point, for what purpose? To what end? Like, why are these governments spending trillions of dollars in, in total? to just trick everyone that the earth is really we got to keep that under wraps the earth is really flat I mean that that starts to become really problematic uh, first off I've got a book on my shelf behind me I do want to point this out too um Isaac Isaac Newton wrote uh, Principia Mathematica or the mathematical principles of natural philosophy in like 1690s and he's trying to describe the motions of uh, the orbits of uh, the celestial bodies And he's laying out information about gravity. He's very honest in what he thinks he can demonstrate or prove mathematically. I mean, the guy basically invents calculus in his 20s. Um, He's one of the brightest minds we've ever had. Um, He knew in his day, just like many people have for centuries before him, that the Earth was round. Uh, And he points out in there that the things I'm expounding on pertaining to the motions of these celestial bodies in my book, in my work, is not new to me and my generation. He says it was known among the ancient Chaldeans. We're talking like 2000 BC, just outside of ancient Egypt. These guys, including the builders of the pyramids from the millennium prior, had some better working understanding of the procession of the equinoxes, of the solstice, the solstitial alignments, uh, of our sun, moon, stars, and they seem to even align their architectural design plans with the cosmos and we point at them and say "Ah, ignoramus they would not even know how to use an iphone but it's like these people they understood the world in which they lived and frankly they paid a lot more attention to the stars and if you just spend a a couple of weeks staring at the phases of the moon it doesn't take a genius to start to put together like how is it that these phases of the moon are actually created well the moon might be round, but but we're a flat we're a flat out we're a flat earth in a round universe and and, and each of them have a different answer for what is the moon? Is it, is it a round object? Um, is there mm. really an outer space? Uh, and I've heard different answers from all these flat earthers. Yes, some think it's just lights. It's a light show that God has placed up there. And others think, no, they're round, but the earth is flat. Mm. He made us special. Um, a, lot, a lot of odd. And you miss out on a lot of beauty and figuring out how all this stuff works That's... If, you, if you adopt a false paradigm. I flew jets and, remember we've launched things into space that I've actually watched the earth from and it's not pretend like we do a mission in the military. For example, we do a private mission with NASA, the civil, civil mission, not private, the civil mission of, of space exploration and so forth. That's not pretend stuff. Uh, I've talked to people on the international space station while they're on the international space station on a video conference and, not everyone in the universe is involved in a grand hoax to trick you into thinking that the earth is round when it's really flat. Um, you know, what's far more fascinating to dig into, because I agree some of this is interesting, titillating, perhaps they, they even invoke electromagnetism to start to describe why it is you can't get to the edges of the earth or why it is that Antarctica is everywhere about, about the perimeter of this flat earth. What's far more interesting to me is to actually try to begin to understand the real conspiracy in the cosmos, why it is that gravity and electromagnetic forces conspire together to make everything round in the entire observable universe. Uh, every, everything, and I want to say, and this is from like years ago with Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, Physics for Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, but everything that is substantive matter and the colder reaches of the universe, you know, this hard, cold, touchable matter that you and I interact with on a day and day, day out basis here on the earth that is over a thousand kilometers in diameter cannot help but be round. It, it will be squished together or pushed or forced together by gravity and electromagnetism to be round. And even at the microcosmic level, things that you can't even see with your eyeballs, you get into an electron microscope to the atomic and subatomic levels, things are round. And there's this ancient hermetic principle. Uh, It's one of seven eternal principles that the ancient hermetists will tell you is a key to understanding the universe and the cosmos they say it's called the principle of correspondence as above so below and the idea is That if there's something that you can't quite get at by looking up at the cosmos and and through observation or demonstration, maybe the answer for it is right under your nose and vice versa. And I'm oversimplifying the idea. Maybe the thing you can't quite get at or understand through your observable experience right under your nose, maybe the answer is laid out all above you at the grand cosmic level or the macro level. And so Mm. the more we've gotten into the truth of reality in the sciences, And there's plenty of falsehood and dogmatic assertions in the sciences too i'm well aware of this and so the challenge for the interested seeker is is sorting through all of that but the more you start to dig into reality you start to see i think the ancient hermetists were onto something when they say Mm -hmm. there's this principle of correspondence as above so below from the subatomic level to the grand cosmic level and the swirling of galaxies and the formation of stars and planets and so forth it looks an awful lot like what's going on under the electron microscope. And yeah. so starting to appreciate that kind of thing, you can actually, for example, understand how we put things, well, you don't even need to understand that to put things in orbit. But there's a beauty to all of this that um, I think you miss out on when you entertain false but interesting tangential paradigms like the flat Earth. And, um, and that's, and that's then too me- bad.
0: And I mean, I said this to my wife a few weeks ago, we were out in the bush for, a few I mean, we, we try and get out into the bush quite regularly uh, just to get away from everything. And we were sitting in a hot tub, a wood-fired hot tub under the stars in the middle of yeah. nowhere. And we were just looking up and, and, and we were talking about this idea of, are those just fairy lights or are they right. stars? And obviously, we came to the conclusion that there are stars. But here's what I said to my wife. If they're just fairy lights and there's a dome around it, for me, that is immensely dark and depressing. That mm. if I'm going to take a religious view and say, well, God created us inside a dome with no way of escaping, um, it's, it's immensely depressing. I mean, the, the, it's the exact inversion of freedom. Hmm. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> I was going to make a joke about something you said, but I shouldn't. You can't inappropriate. I don't know who's listening to this. You, I know you don't. You, you won't even censor me. No. Yeah, I'll, I really enjoy studying this stuff. That's not the joke, but I, I really enjoy studying this <laughs> stuff. I, I think you know, there's, be- there's beauty all around us that's worth our time, attention, admiration, and we we see too little of it unless we can get out into the bush and Mm -hmm. um, spend some time under a a night sky that is not obscured by light pollution. Uh, And just about anywhere I've lived in the last 11 years, I mean, you have to like get in a car and drive for a while so you can even see what's going on up there. And yet we think the ancients were the ignorant ones. Yeah. I mean, people don't even recognize... uh, We're just too busy in front of our our lit screens and things to to pay attention to what's happening out there. But, you know, the ancient world also believed um, that there's even something, this sounds like astrology. It's not exactly what I mean by it, but they believed there was a connection between what was going on up there with the motions of the planets, there are wandering stars and fixed stars, and that somehow God... Or the gods depending on which tradition um one would hail from or is paying attention to set those things in motion first as signs and then for seasons is the way it appears in the book of genesis first for signs and then for seasons and they provide um uh they provide both of those things for us but the, the question is who can truly learn something from it. That's an entirely different question. And there are plenty of people out there that would be happy to sell you their knowledge because they claim they know something about what's going on up there, whether they do or not, because they, you know, they did a a four week course on astrology or something. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of phonies out there, a lot of frauds, uh, a lot of people willing to make a buck. And, um, Uh, That's one of the challenges. I'll be speaking about this in in the state of Arizona in one month. Uh, There's a conference called Earth Origins that Randall Carlson is going to be speaking at, probably Graham Hancock, uh, George Howard from the Cosmic Tusk, and some others. But I've been invited to speak. I said, I'll speak if you let me come and talk about the seeker's path.
0: I want to talk about
1: what it means to develop the kind of firmness of mind that helps you sort through there's a lot of noise. Like, how yeah. do you get at the real signal and dial in? Find the voices that are worth paying attention to, and um, that's that's a
0: challenge to address an eclectic audience on that topic. You're going to have to help me out because while you've been talking, I've been trying to find a segue into cultural yeah. Marxism.
1: Oh, uh, let's make one. <laughs> I can make one. Um, so here's the segue. Okay. Uh all right. Um see, yeah, an honest conversationalist <laughs> can really push things along, you know. <laughs> Here's the segue. Given the the grandeur of the things we've been talking about, I mean, the potential, the interest, the excitement of say the cosmos or the space domain. Wouldn't you like if you have a space force? Wouldn't you like those military professionals to be excited about the new domain that they're now responsible for safeguarding, protecting, ensuring war doesn't begin or break out into that domain? And there's so much, it's a vast body of knowledge about how that whole arena works. And it's not even natural for us to orient ourselves to how things function up there from a celestial mechanics perspective, let's say. And yet we distract ourselves Instead, with conversations, really, it's a demonstration of misplaced priorities, focusing on all the things that don't matter. When we start talking about race identity politics or narratives that are rooted in the cultural cultural Marxist worldview that that we've inherited, we've now got academics pushing on university campuses, and we've invited these folks right into our uh, military campuses. Uh, my, my window's open here because it's, it's nice out today and um, there's a walk a walker by a passerby who's who stopped to listen to this interview and um, he's he's walking <laughs> his dog <laughs> and he heard me shouting and uh, he's like what the hell's is that guy talking about <laughs> but you want you want these people the bottom line to be focused on the kind of things that will make them excited about protecting the sanctity of that domain in as much as that is in the power of us humans to do. And yet we're distracted with politics, uh, culturally divisive narratives, anti-Western or capitalist narratives, the kinds of things that really for all intents and purposes, disincentivize service to your country, disincentivize any interest in this kind of stuff. They these young people who sign up and and wear the uniform of their country ought to be excited about the work they're going to do, and instead we disincentivize them by telling them your country is a bad place. It's potentially irredeemably racist, and boy, we need a you know viva la revolution. We need a social revolution. We need a cultural revolution, and um, and we need less white people doing it, you know, because they're bad guys. So when they start hearing all of that that garbage, um, you think they're going to want to stick around in the military? That's not why they signed up to serve. That's not Well, I mean Make them excited about this stuff.
0: Well, I mean, look, let's be honest. We also don't know what a woman is anymore. So, um. Yeah. Yep. Well, we get trainings about
1: that. You know, the um, U.S. Air Force Academy, which is my alma mater, um, had some disgruntled students in the past couple of weeks, and therefore their parents became disgruntled over some diversity and inclusion trainings, so-called. I mean... What that means in reality is something different, practically speaking, is something different than a um, surface-level investigation of, of those words might reveal. But these parents and these cadets became disgruntled because of a training that they'd received. And in the training slides, which have now gone public and which generated some negative publicity for my alma mater in the past week, What the training slides say is if we're going to practice inclusion now, we need to stop referring to our friends or our peers' guardians as mom and dad because that is exclusive language because you don't know if they've got a mom or a dad or a mom and a dad. And so you need to simply refer to them as guardians or parental figures. Um, Stop referring to one another as he or she. That's potentially exclusive. And it's not, hey, you guys. Think think about you've got these tough young men and in some cases young women who have joined the military and they're all excited and gung-ho about defending their country. And right now they're going through sensitivity trainings to make sure they don't offend one another. They never knew that they were going to be offended by that stuff until they were taught to be offended by that stuff. And some of them, unfortunately, not many, but some of them buy into the victimhood ideology and say, you know what, that's right. I only had... moms growing up and so if you ask me who my mom and my dad are i'm going to take umbrage and now i'm going to file a racism complaint or you know pick your pick your thing i mean that's not healthy for any organization but it's surely not healthy for a military who should thrive in unity and be focused on a particular mission in defense of a country and tell you and, and dude that's why i wrote this book it's, beca- it's not because I care a great deal about politics. I, frankly, they're important, but I don't care that much what people's political views are. I care about our military maintaining its unity, its, um, its integrity that should be fo- mission-focused, its lethality, its readiness levels. And uh, I'm also concerned about where this leads if we keep this oppressor versus oppressed uh, narrative of Western civilization going and we keep fueling that narrative, well, it leads to people hating each other um, viscerally. It leads to them seeking it for ways to solve their disputes outside of free speech because if you, if you can't solve your problems using speech, you solve them with force. And we've seen people walk that path. We've seen nations walk that path throughout history, but especially relevant
0: examples exist all through the 20th century mm. that it's all too easy to point to. But it's an endless loop, isn't it? Um, Hotel California syndrome. You know, once you can you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Um, the grievance industry. All right. Well, we've solved this oppression, so we're going to find another one.
1: Yeah, you have to. You see, if you want the revolution and the revolutionary spirit to to remain. Uh, to maintain their energy, then, if one particular narrative isn't quite creating the umph you're looking for, then you need to move on to the next problem and the next the next victim class, the next oppressed class, and ho- in hopes that they will catch the vision and rise up. So, one of the things I trace through in my book is that you know critical race theory, as a discipline hasn't really been around, especially in name, uh, until the late 1980s, but it grew out of something that preceded it. And the thing from which it grew was another critical discipline. It's called critical legal studies or critical legal theory. And that was prevalent in the 1950s and 60s as an attempt to discredit the legal and justice systems of the United States and to criticize all things Western legal system, Western constitution-based uh, rule of law and so judeo-christian based uh, legal system but that grew out of something that preceded it and it was just critical theory writ large it was the criticism of all things western civilization the criticism of capitalism of course that comes from marxism and those who are the purveyors of the critical school were marxists that had come to the mm-hmm. united states and into into the west from they fled uh, the third reich in the 1930s out of germany uh and and the communist parties uh, that were established first in their formal instantiation as a state after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, and then within, I think, 100 countries or so within the next couple of years. And, and now you get, you know, you're in the World War One time frame. And that's when communist parties really begin to take to be formally organized in countries all over the globe, they don't really thrive. They just are, and they're trying to gain momentum. And so these different, there's, there's this, um, invasion of of sorts into the universities and university campuses in the West with efforts to establish the critical school, to criticize all things, Western civilization so that you could somehow divorce the, the typical citizen from the values, um, uh, socially and culturally speaking, that their country's held dear because they're never going to rise up and fight against their incumbent government or against the existing system unless they somehow become divorced enough from their value system and their mores to really begin to hate it and then fight against it. And so it's been a century in the making, really. The seeds were planted and yeah. more and more this has spread until the right pivotal crises um, show up. George Floyd's death is a good example of one of those in this country. And then um, it's instantly there were activists who seized upon the misfortune of George Floyd to then create the the radical left-wing activist moment throughout the West, primarily in the United States. It was everywhere, really. Um, But Black Lives Matter and Other and Antifa and others seized an opportunity, had very good funding sources, by the way, and and started to burn cities, stomp flags, smash windows, and disrupt the civil order in hopes of creating the revolution.
0: George Soros, George Soros, (coughs) cough, cough.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so everyone knows that name, of course, because it's true. It's not just Mm -hmm. a rumor. And, And so, boy, what will the next thing be that allows us to seize a moment and to promulgate the kind of activist destruction in western civilization that will in turn now here's what the useless and well here's what the useful idiots and the useless scum of society uh to put it that way and that's not even my words that's from communist literature here's what they don't appreciate is that they're simply pawns in bringing about a revolution some of them hope for that revolution but some of them just want to burn destroy loot and get something out of it and move on and what they're What the grand orchestrators of this kind of revolutionary spirit are actually hoping for is that enough people say, hey, enough is enough, and start to fight those people, start to kill them, uh, start to defend themselves enough to the point where there's now a great deal more bloodshed. If you start to have that kind of friction and violence uh, in society, that gives justification for governments to step in and start to use force to put down the revolt. and impose martial law and then people become more agitated if we've reached that point and you've got fratricidal and genocidal Mm. violence that ensues and uh, i mentioned that in the last chapter of my book that's where things that's what's on the horizon if the marxist narratives and impulse are left unchecked and what's sad is that you can educate 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 uh society people and, and and people fall all over a spectrum it's kind of a big bell curve and some really see the picture and they're they're not many, but th- they really see things clearly. And then most people think, "Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with this," or "Yeah, it's a big problem." But you know, what do you really do about it? And they don't quite get it. But and then there's others that are like on the other side of that bell curve that are just totally activist in favor of and support of this kind of garbage that uh, wrecks societies. And they're few and far between. I mean, they're not few and far between anymore, but there's fewer of them than are those that are just wanting to get about their lives peacefully, sustainably, and go to work and feed their families and so forth. And, um, uh, yeah, we're, Marks, we're living through exciting times and in, in some ways, and we're going to see some good and some great and some dreadful things
0: unfold in the months and years ahead. Uh, Karl Marx, who was uh, very anti-capitalist um he uh, he wrote the Communist Manifesto, and of course, keeping true to his desire to be anti-capitalist, I didn't buy the book. I I found it somewhere on the internet and downloaded it. Yeah, um, and I read it, and it's quite honestly the probably the most shit book I've ever read. The Communist Manifesto. Yes. Yeah, I can't well, think of I, I can't think of one that's worse. I haven't read mm. Fifty Shades of Grey. Maybe that's worse. <laughs> maybe
1: well but 50 shades of gray won't have the kind of societal or global impact that the communist manifesto had um one of the things i try and do in my book irresistible revolution that's worth noting is to you know the the communist manifesto that's written in 1848 is not an exceptionally long manifesto uh, and it's been printed in small book format but it's still hard for people to get through the four sections of the manifesto. So I condense Mm -hmm. that into something that's basically a chapter in my book. And I say, hey, basically here is not basically quite literally here is what the four sections are saying. And I lay it out section by section. I quote directly from the manifesto. And then I say, let me restate that for you to make it abundantly clear what it is that Marx and Engels are trying to convey to their reader and what they're trying to accomplish one of the things that the marxist apologist or academic will tell you about marx about his views on capitalism about his views on in the manifesto is that you know marx really his theory is more of an economic theory an economic class well yeah that's partly true but what they are trying to accomplish in teeing up the conversation in that way is to ignore the fact that it's also a It's a call for revolutionary violence and for the overthrow of incumbent governments. And it's it's as every bit as much that as it is anything else. And I try to make that really clear. So once you've studied, say, one chapter of my commentary on the Communist Manifesto, go back and read that thing again. And I think, you know, one of the words that you'll think of when you read it is, well, that's evil. Mm. uh it is it is evil. and and in fact, knowing a little bit of something about Karl Marx and his ambitions in the decade lead up to his being conscripted to write that manifesto will also tell you something about his intentions. He uses words like dethrone God, for example mm. it's not that I no longer believe in him. Uh, I'm going to dethrone him and and stab a dagger through his heart if I can, and that will include also of course the overthrow of all of the capitalist systems in the world. So he's, he's really got a dark um, spirit and impulse uh, behind a lot of his work. And um, he's also got a lot of, here's the tricky part. I don't even want to focus on this, but having read that several times uh, and now some other, now I've read a lot on Marxism and communism, there's a lot that appeals Oh boy, it is it's crafty, but there's a lot, of course, that will appeal to the reader, and especially depending on how they're situated, but in those writings and in Marx's writings, and there's and there's some things that are true in there that really kind of tug at the strings of human nature and bring people along into wanting to believe in the ideology wholesale. And it's especially easy to be persuaded that there's some value in his view you know tip uh, in, in one way of putting it it's the oppressor versus oppressed narrative because there's truth in some of that um it's, it's especially easy to be persuaded to believe there's value there if the humans if any of the readers happen to have a kind of spiritual or moral or ideological vacuum that they're looking to fill if, if you're wrestling with trying to find meaning in life, uh, yeah. you feel like you're devoid or bereft of purpose, you've yeah. come to not believe in some of, you know, whether it's religious or political uh, uh, views that you'd once thought you knew. And, and there's something that can be quite appealing to the Marxist um, worldview, because it's not with you that there's a problem. It's with those about you. That there's a problem and if you can just simply get them right and get society fixed up a lot of the misery and suffering and problems that you experience in your life they'll, they'll all go away and they'll be fixed up it'll be okay i'll tell you the reason i wrote the book is the last chapter so in as much as i am in as much as the book is useful in describing say the communist manifesto Karl marx's history the revolutionary aim of marxist ideology the last chapter is called the wrath to come mm. or averting the wrath to come which is a prognostication of sorts of where this all leads if we continue walking this road as society and it's true where what i've written in there and it's why i wrote the book and so i had to kind of work backward from there and um say well shoot if i'm going to say this and warn people that this is what's on the horizon they have to know a little bit about where I'm coming from. So let me trace through the history of Marxist revolutions and Marxist ideology. And in order for them to appreciate how ugly that is, let me work back further still. The beginning of the book, I'll try and lay out the beauty and the greatness of the American ideal and what we were trying to accomplish in the beginning and why it's been wildly successful in some ways. And and you need to sometimes see what is beautiful and lovely in order to appreciate what is ugly and grotesque. And that's what that's kind of the contrast that I try and... Uh, layout in the book the problem of having hyper politicized modern society but here's here's the catch and here's why i cared when i was in command of a missile warning unit in the space force service members are asked were trained and told to be apolitical in the workplace because it's important that our military remain apolitical but then they're bombarded with political messages they're bombarded with slogans and and propaganda and they begin to recognize it as once as as something that makes them uncomfortable that they disagree with and if they speak up and say uh well i don't want to support Mm -hmm. the black lives matter movement because i think it's marxist right then it's they're in big trouble because either how you know how dare you and you i mean siri put it mildly but how dare you or they're they're told that their view is a politically partisan view which is not allowed think about that for a minute like you can show active support for the movement that's not politics that's just common sense and good and right and good for you and to say no no i don't support that i understand its origins it's marxism i don't support marxism and of course all black lives all of our lives matter and it's like whoa whoa whoa! what are you alt-right white (laughs) supremacist (laughs) <laughs> yes. You know, think about the insanity <laughs> of the modern age. And there, there, there are blacks that share my view on this, mm. and they're just the face of white supremacy wearing black skin. You know, and like, there was a guy running for governor out in California, uh, Larry Elder, black conservative. Yeah, and I know him. Leftist of leftist political yeah, activists were saying that Larry Elder, black conservative, just like Thomas Sowell or... Uh, our Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who are all black. It's like, well, you're just really white supremacists running around, and mm. or you have black shame, or it's Uncle like, Tom. Give me a break. Yeah, Uncle. Tom. And, and so it's so low and so mean and vulgar to, mm. to stoop to criticizing people if their political view doesn't align with the, you know the prevailing mar- narrative. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. You know Joe Biden uh, when he's Brandon. running for office. I mean that kind of stuff. Yeah, Brandon, Joe, Joe Brandon brandon you know he's he's losing his mind it's it's pretty clear social media is making it clear too many videos of him are Mm. are showing up i'm surprised i guess it's just because democrats control the congress that he hasn't they haven't invoked the 25th amendment to remove him from power but he's uh he's an old senile fool uh Mm. who's unfortunately in the white house and um yeah i feel bad for him and his
0: family got a question from norman he wants to know do you know anything about DU, direct energy weapons? In 1989, the U.S. government confirmed the successful test of space-based Star Wars beam weapon. Do you know anything about that?
1: I do. That's my quick answer. I guess I'll have to come back for another conversation about it. But um, okay, probably what I know, Norman, is what you know. It's not because of my line of work that I know anything about it. It's more because of what I've read about it online and, and learned about it. But uh, we wouldn't have time to get into it here.
0: In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Ooh,
1: dang. Two part answer. I'll be as brief as I can read the last chapter of my book. That's the, that's the first thing I see in the crystal ball. Uh, the second thing I see in the crystal ball is that good people across the globe will continue to consolidate, um, into communities that they feel they're like-minded with. Uh, it will look a bit tribal, and that will happen in governments and communities all across the globe as we continue to face increasing challenges in
0: the world. Where can, where can I find you, Matt? Well, um, people can go to
1: my website, which I don't touch very often, but there's information there. It's MatthewLohmeyer.com. My last name is spelled L-O-H-M-E-I-E-R, and um, my book is on Amazon. It's probably the best place to get it because it's the cheapest there. I'm guessing a softback's three dollars and something. Uh, the hardback is under ten dollars, and
0: uh, be worth your time to look at look at what's in there. Matthew Lomaya, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.